Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged as you listen today. Excellent. Well, last week, um, we're sort of doing a bit of a series on questions at the moment. Okay, last week I answered the question, why can't God just forgive us? Because you may have noticed we were singing about this man who was murdered on our, our behalf. Okay, we talk about the scandal of grace. And so, you know, for those that know anything about Christianity, know that it sort of centers around the crucifixion of a man um, for the sake of all humankind. Okay, and so we had a look at, you know, that, that sounds pretty drastic, but why couldn't God just forgive? And I would encourage you, if that's something that you ever thought about, to actually have a listen to the message from last week, because I don't have time to recap it um, this afternoon or this evening, but it is available free of charge both through iTunes and from our website. Today, though, I want to have a look at another question which many people ask, and it's, what about those who have never heard the gospel? What about those who have never heard the gospel? And I'm going to just start by reading from a passage in a book called Romans, or a letter called Romans. Uh, Romans was written by a guy called Paul to a sort of a fledgling church in Rome. It was fairly culturally diverse, um, and they had some challenges in the church. But he writes a great, um, uh, some great theology and sort of helps them to understand that while they might be culturally quite different, at the end of the day, they have the same saviour and they need to get along. All right, so Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 16 to 25. And Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. In other words, the non-Jews. For in the gospel, a righteousness, and what that word simply means is a right standing with God, because the Bible talks about the fact that all are separated from God, and we talked about last week, at enmity actually with God. But he's talking about we can come into right standing, a right relationship with God through the gospel. Um, a, A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The just, or the righteous, will live by faith. And so this term, the gospel, simply means good news. I just want to start by just mentioning three reasons very, very quickly why the gospel actually is good news. The first reason is because it's for everyone who believes. It's inclusive. Okay, It's for every person who believes. You may have, all, uh, may have heard John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And you know, some people like to think that Christians are exclusive, and unfortunately some Christians live like Christianity is exclusive, but at the end of the day, God's heart is inclusive. All people from all times, God wants all in his family. Okay, that's one of the reasons that the gospel is actually good news. The second reason I have here is that it talks about a righteousness from God is revealed. And so this whole concept of revelation, that God has told us plainly what his will is for our lives what his way of salvation is. We don't have to guess. When we're left to guess about what's going to please God, um, we come up with all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas as evidenced by the many, many religions across the face of the planet today. Okay, so it's an inclusive religion. It's a revealed religion. It's God speaking directly to us through Jesus in this case. And thirdly, and most importantly, it's attainable. It's attainable. It says it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In other words, it bypasses all of the other factors in life and religion that would tend towards advantaging some and disadvantaging others. 
You think about in life, there are, there are things that advantage you or disadvantage you. It's an advantage to be intelligent. It's a disadvantage to be not so intelligent. It's an advantage to be fit and healthy. It's a disadvantage to be unfit, not so healthy or possibly even physically disabled. Certainly a disadvantage to be intellectually disabled. It's an advantage to be wealthy and popular. It's a disadvantage to be poor and despised. Okay, so there's all these things that have worked their way into religion, and we see that often people um, are excluded because they're not advantaged in life. And you think about the religions out there, they're so often, um, there, there are things you have to do. You know, some might require going on a pilgrimage. Well, that's fine if you're fit, healthy, and have the money to do so, but what about if you're not? What about if you're poor and you're not healthy? Will you miss out? Maybe it's about an intellectual pursuit. Maybe it's about understanding deep truths and hidden truths. But maybe if you're just a simple kind of person, you're not ever going to get that. So you're excluded on the basis of your intellect or lack of. Okay, and that's the problem with every religion. It includes some, but it always excludes others. And so the wonderful thing about our faith is that it's just that. It's about faith. By faith... From first to last. We've sung about Jesus dying on our behalf and the gospel is that for any person who will believe that, they can have eternal life. It doesn't require health. It doesn't require wealth. It doesn't require intellect. It requires, Jesus said, the faith of a child. A child is actually at an advantage in one sense. But any of us can muster up faith. It doesn't matter what the rest of our life looks like. And so it's wonderful in that sense. It's attainable because we can all believe. Some would respond to that though and say, well, that's fine. But what about those people who have never ever heard the gospel? And that's in itself not a bad question. But I guess it depends to me what the motive is for that question. Because there's a couple of motives that, that are good. And there are some, some other motives that are not so good when you ask that question. Some people use a question like that to deflect they feel the pressure is on them to respond because they've heard the gospel, but they want to deflect away from themselves, and so they want to ask a hard question and put the Christian back under pressure to answer something that they sometimes can't answer. Sometimes it's about trying to actually bring an accusation against God. The insinuation is that God's actually not fair because we know that not everyone has heard the gospel, and if the gospel is the way to be saved, well, therefore God is not fair. So that's, I think they're the, the, the negative motives. I think the positive motives around this question are just a genuine question because it does seem like there's a, a, an inconsistency there or there's something that needs to be um, uh, brought together because we know about the fact that God is love and loving and we know that God is just and fair and so therefore that we somehow need to be able to reconcile those parts of God's nature. And it does seem a little bit unfair on the surface. If some people have never heard the gospel, does that mean they never have the opportunity to become a Christian and therefore be saved and have eternal life? I think it's a good question if we look at it that way. And so Paul, um, if we continue to read, has actually sort of preempted that question. And he goes on to look at that question. And he says this in verse 18 onwards. He says, The wrath of God, which we looked at last week, is being revealed, which is God's, just, God's righteous response to wickedness and sinfulness. But it's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what is made, so that men 
are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So speaking, I guess, generally about idolatry there. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. He then goes on and just lists off all the problems and all the wickedness that people get up to as he continues through Romans chapter 1. All right, so what I want to have a look at is just want to draw out of what Paul has shared there three faulty assumptions that people often make when they want to bring this, this question that is often an accusation against God. Okay, so they're really saying, you know, God's not fair because not all people have heard the gospel. And so I want to just have a quick look at this. And the first thing, the first faulty assumption that we need to avoid is that of ignorance. Because some people assume that if you haven't heard the gospel, ignorance is a good defense when it comes to standing before God. If I don't hear it, I can't reject it, therefore I'm safe. The problem with that little story or that little scenario is that if that was actually true, the kindest thing we could do would be to shut up shop, keep our mouths closed and not say anything about the gospel because people would be better off not hearing it if that was true. But Jesus has said, no, no, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So we are commanded as Christians to go and, and, share, and share and spread this good news. For since the creation of the world, and why is that? Well, it says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so that men are without excuse. You see, the gospel is actually the second chance. The gospel's a second chance, not a first chance, not an only chance. What this is saying here, Paul's saying, look, just by the virtue of the fact of creation, all of us are without excuse. There are two types of revelation, theologically speaking, if you like. One is termed special revelation, and one's called general revelation. And special revelation would be where God specifically spells something out. So the gospel is an example of special revelation, the person of Jesus Christ, prophecy. These things are God speaking, breaking into our world and speaking to us about something that we could otherwise not possibly know about. That's special revelation. When it comes to creation and even conscience, which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, these fall into the realm of general revelation. And it's kind of more implicit, okay, what God is saying. He's speaking indirectly through these things. But nonetheless, because he's speaking, we're still without excuse. So for example... Just the fact that there is something here in this universe in which we find ourselves, rather than nothing, rather than no universe, suggests a first cause. Now, if any person is a, any sort of philosopher or scientist, you will know that a basic principle in life is cause and effect. Nothing happens. You never get an effect without a cause. That is a massive problem for evolutionists, for humanists or atheists, people that are trying to come up with a starting point for our universe. They can talk in terms of big bangs and all that sort of stuff. I don't have a problem with that. But what they've got to have is in the midst of nothing, somehow you've got to get something started. 
And there is no natural explanation for that to actually take place. There is no logical, rational, or reasonable explanation for that to take place. You need to step outside of the natural realm and to step into the supernatural realm. Both are faith positions. We need to ask which one is more logical, which one is more reasonable, which one is more rational. And if there's no natural explanation, there's no natural explanation. So therefore, it makes good sense to, as much as it might stretch us, to think, well, possibly there's a supernatural explanation, something that we cannot possibly currently comprehend, but nonetheless, the fact that we're here suggests that there's something that we don't understand going on in this universe. So we should be drawn towards this concept of a first cause. Then as we begin to look further, not just at the fact that we're here, but what's actually here, and we begin to look at creation itself, and we see the beauty and we see the complexity, we see the diversity, we see the way that creation uh, interacts with itself, but whether it be on a, you know, just in, a, in an individual organism, whether it be in terms of ecosystems, we are really compelled to be, th- if we are, I think, thinking rationally, to be thinking more in terms of a designer rather than just time and chance and random processes. The evidence, I feel, is far stronger towards design than to chance. The third thing, really, is just the grandeur of the world in which we live, the scale of the world, the scale of the galaxy, the scale of the universe. This would suggest a God who is powerful, and that's exactly what Paul said, his his hidden qualities, his power. These things are obvious to all who want to take a moment to think about it. Okay, next time you go for a walk up the hills or you go snorkeling or whatever, Don't just ignore it. Think about the complexity. Think about the beauty. Think about the interaction, the relationship between all those things. And ask yourself seriously, is it more likely that this happened by design or by chance? Is it more likely this was put together by an incredible intellect or just by accident? So that's creation. I guess in the same way, our conscience also means that we're without excuse because there's a, there's a kind of universal moral code. Now, I know that can get degraded, but at the end of the day, I think our conscience is like a little black box that God has put into our life. That when we stand before him, he's gonna, we've all started with a conscience that is, that is pliable and, and soft and, and sensitive. And yes, the Bible talks about the fact that we can sear our consciences. We can ignore our conscience. We can grieve our consciences. Um, and ultimately, you know, people can do extremely wicked things and not feel bad about it. But I think there's going to be a record of that in our lives that God will be able to bring us back to. And we will be absolutely 100% without excuse. So Paul is basically saying that even non-Christians know enough about God and his law from creation and from conscience to be accountable to God. The problem isn't that people are ignorant. In fact, Paul goes on to say the problem is that people are actively suppressing the truth. They're not ignorant, they just don't want to believe it, and so they try and hide it. Which leads me to the next faulty assumption assumption we can have, which is that of innocence. Many people assume that the average good person is actually innocent. And the reason we do that is because when we use a term like innocent, we're using it in a relative sense. You know, we apply it to a very small part of life. You know, maybe we're talking about a, a speeding law, and I'll probably defy anyone to actually be innocent on this score, but, that, you know, unless you haven't got a license yet, and even then there's probably some that have sped, but, 
But, um, you know, you could say, well, okay, I'm innocent when it comes to driving um, above the speed limit. But that's a very small part of life. Okay, and when God's talking about innocence, he's talking about absolutely perfect. We looked last week at about the fact that God himself is the standard, and the Bible tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So the person of God, God didn't just come up with these ideas about rules and regulations that he wants us to keep, but those rules and regulations that we, many of us, I think we'll all be aware of the Ten Commandments at some level, but they flow out of the person of God himself. So when God says, don't steal, or don't lie, or don't be unfaithful, it's because God himself is truth, that he, he is for people, he's faithful, absolutely, etc., etc. He's loving. Okay, and so um, that's the standard. And if we look at human history, Jesus Christ is the only person that has measured up to that standard, the standard of the perfection of God himself. We were all created in his image, created with great um, potential, if you like, but every one of us has fallen short. Now, you might say, well, that's a bit fair. You know, how do you know that Jesus um, met that standard? Well, the reason we know that Jesus met that standard is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the guarantee that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice as a holy and a perfect sacrifice. Okay? So, you know, it's sad really because every one of us was created with a high calling in God. We had something wonderful to live up to, but every one of us has chosen the low road. Every one of us has chosen the low road of our own wisdom and our own agendas our own desires, to some degree. And the Bible calls that sin, okay? It's missing the mark. We looked at this last week again. I really would encourage you, if you're here for the first time, to, to go and have a listen to that, or even if you weren't here last week. Okay, I think it's, it's absolutely crucial that we understand that. All right, so Paul summarizes all of that. He talks about the godlessness and the wickedness of those who suppress the truth. Okay, so the first step is to step away from God, and beyond that, it's just like a downward spiral that ultimately just ends up proving that God is totally just when he judges humanity outside of Christ. All right, and so, you know, we see (laughs) it's not that people don't believe in God, and it's not even that people can't believe in God because I can see a few people doing this. It's getting quite warm in here. Can we perhaps just crank the air conditioner on for a bit? That'd be great. Excellent. Um, so it's not that they can't, you know, atheists say, well, I just can't believe in God. There's not enough evidence. Well, I would, I would challenge that. In fact, I know there are atheists who, who are honest and say, it's not that I can't believe, it's just I don't want to believe in God. I'm looking for alternatives because I don't like the concept of accountability. And so it's not so much that we can't believe in God or we don't believe in God. It's more that we don't like the one on offer. And so many people then create gods in their own image. And they create gods who are perhaps disinterested and are far off and aloof from humanity. Or they create gods that are easily pleased. Or they create gods that can be manipulated. And this is, this is reflected in all the religions across the world. Some even try and create no god in their existence. And again, with atheism. You know, many people, particularly now in our society, we, we, we under the impression that atheism is kind of like the thing to believe. It's like, you know, all, all, anyone who's got half a brain doesn't believe in God. Nothing could be further from the truth, guys. You're only 2% of the world's population is atheist. And newsflash, it's not the smartest 2%. <laughs> all right, it's not. You can go to a university, any university, in our country, and you will find at the very top levels, lecturing in those universities, you'll find a believer 
and an atheist. Intellectually, you cannot separate them. What separates them is their worldview. One person has yielded to the revelation of God. One is in rebellion, in rebellion to the revelation of God. That's the only thing that separates. So once we, as I said, we reject the one true God, we just gain momentum downhill and it just end up proving, as I've said, that God is just after all. And so the third thing I want to look at quickly is, you know, ignorance is not an excuse. No person is innocent. And the third faulty assumption people have is this whole this concept of what I'm calling independence. It's that somehow those who haven't yet heard the gospel are living beyond the range of the gospel in a different reality. And, you know, you know what I'm talking about when I explain it. I mean, this whole idea of rev- relativism. You know, the idea in our society that says, it doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you believe, you're all going to get what you want. <laughs> That's relativism. You know, we, we kind of truth, well, the idea of ultimate truth is almost like a swear word. You can't say someone else is wrong. You've got to say, no, it's all equally valid. And so for the Muslim, whatever they believe, they're going to get what they want. The Buddhists are going to get what they want. The atheists are going to get what they want. The Christians are going to get And it's, it's all totally compatible. Rubbish. That is an irrational position. That makes no sense anywhere on the planet today. What's true for one is true for all. We've, we've looked at this in the past, I know. But, you know, if God is true, he's true for all. If he's not, he's not true for all. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. If there's no God, you know, we're to be more pitied than anyone Paul spoke about. We've got to be honest about that. But the fact is, there is a God, and therefore there's a God for all. And therefore it's a matter, okay, how has this God revealed himself, and how can we come into relationship with this God? Because intuitively, there's this understanding that we are separated from God. The Bible and biology both tell us that humanity ultimately is just one big family. Yes, over time there's been dispersion, there's been isolation, that's resulted in, in people groups that are, have distinct physical characteristics and cultural attributes. But genetically, there is no basis for different races. Okay, we are all part of the same family. Our common roots, for those that want to see them, are easily seen. And the same thing applies to religion. Dispersion has resulted in a whole plethora, a weird and wonderful variety of all sorts of manifestations when it comes to worship and seeking God. But if we look deep enough, we can see the fact that there's a that universe, sorry, that worship itself is actually a universal experience of humanity. And we can see that there are common theological threads across the world. There is no people group on the planet that, that has this a concept that somehow something's not right. You know, we look across um, the world and, and, you know, sacrifice and this concept of, of needing blood to cover our sin is common across the face of the planet. And you can see humanity at work, you know, where, because again, the Bible talks about this, that crea- creation, that, that humanity was one family and, you know, Adam and Eve sinned and God needed to provide a blood sacrifice in order to cover over their sins. And as there was this dispersion, you could see that, you know, that, that the truth was distorted and things were forgotten, but, but there was elements of the truth still in people's consciousness. And so some would sacrifice chickens and some would sacrifice goats and, and some would thought, we can do one better than that, we're going to sacrifice our kids. But this concept of sin and separation is universal. This concept of worship is universal. Every one of us, you know, Paul said that... Um, 
talking about those who don't, haven't heard the gospel. It says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. You know, the first commandment was about having no other gods and, and not creating idols and all these sorts of things. And yet, the further people got away from the revealed word of God, the specific revelation of God, they did their own thing. And ultimately, they began to trust in things and, and nature and, and creatures and so on and so forth. You know, we're all created to experience a sense of awe and wonder. You know, you stand on a mountaintop, you look around, and there's a sense of awe and wonder that's supposed to find its way back to God as worship. You go to the zoo, and you look at the diversity and the beauty and the, the cuteness and the scariness of all the animal kingdom, and it creates a sense of awe that's supposed to find its way back to God as worship. The trouble is, if we reject God, or we create a God in our own image, we short-circuit that process, and we remain with our focus on the creature rather than on the creator. And so the world we live in, you know, it's, it's wonderful, it's mysterious. Like I said, it's a place full of landscapes and, and creatures, an amazing phenomenon. But it's supposed to come back to God in worship. And if we reject him, ultimately our focus will come onto the things, the creatures, rather than the creator. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, Paul was speaking in terms of idolatry here. And you might say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I don't have a golden calf in my lounge room or, you know, I don't bow down to little idols. Incidentally, you know, most people in the world today do. But you might not. But the fact is that your focus, if not on the creator, will be taken to some point in creation. And you'll be captivated by some aspect of creation. And you might not sit down and pray to or sing hymns to your car or your sporting hero or whatever, but they will captivate you in a way that is reserved for God. Or alternatively, you will live for them in a way that we're only designed to live for God. I mean, do, do this next time you watch the cricket or the soccer or the footy or whatever. Listen to the way they talk about the players. We are created to worship. The superlatives that roll forth as they're explaining the magnificence and the brilliance of this guy and that guy. And then they go back in history and they start to talk about Bradman or they start to talk about this guy and that guy. It's worship. We're created to worship. We're created to, to, to look beyond ourselves and to be awestruck. And it's supposed to go to God, but often it stops short. False religion, sport, a cause... Save the whales, save the trees. It's all just worship that's fallen short of God. Yeah. And so in conclusion, I just want to say these three things. No person is truly ignorant of God and his righteous demands. No person is innocent in God's sight. And no person lives independently of God's influence. The good news for those who haven't heard the gospel, it's actually found in the nature and character of God himself. It frustrates me when Christians talk about, they're going to go to hell, talking about pagans and atheists and all that sort of stuff, as if, as if that's the heart of God in this whole thing. God is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love. He is just, yes, and he will judge sin, 
but he longs and desires because he's loving to be merciful and gracious. And he is actively pursuing people who don't currently hear the gospel. I believe that every person has the opportunity to be saved. Any person at any time in history can be awed by the majesty of this creation in which we live and utter a prayer and say, I don't know if you're there, God, but it seems too incredible to me to think this happened by accident and begin a quest, begin a journey. No, God does not ignore those little prayers that go up, even from the non-Christians, those who've never come under the hearing of the gospel. Remember this, or understand this. You know, before Jesus came, throughout history before that, God had broken into people's lives. Yes, there was the, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and these guys who had specific revelations from God. But the Old Testament is full of other people also who found their way in to the kingdom because of a gracious God who was looking for opportunity to save, not opportunity to condemn. Think about Rahab. Think about Ruth. Think about Nebuchadnezzar and these people that, that they had God revealed to them in some way, shape or form. You know, the revelation of, of those in the Old Testament is nowhere near the revelation we have today. It's not about how much we know. It's about what we do with how much we know. Now, I know for some you're going to be getting a little bit nervous right now. But I want you to understand that God is absolutely interested in people. And he has called us to preach the gospel, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But time and time and time again, those who are going to the ends of the earth are finding that God has already prepared the way. That people are living with an expectation of a God who has sent his son to die. Who, who are, they're living in expectation of people to come and bring the book that tells them God's story. And I'm just kind of naive enough to believe that a person who lives faithful to that, maybe, you know, maybe some prophet in some little village somewhere has an encounter with the living God. And you know, interestingly, you look through history, it's dotted with certain random events that have happened where whole cultures have suddenly changed direction religiously. Because it seems like someone has had an encounter with the real God. They've broken out of their religious traditions. They've broken out of their paganism, their sacrifice. And they've, some of their, their, their poetry is like, you could, be, you could be reading the Psalms. There's a revelation of creator God. And I believe a person who is, who is waiting for and understands they are sinful, understands they need a saviour. And they live consistently with that, faithfully looking forward, just as Abraham did, just as David did, just as Adam did that they are not automatically going to hell because they haven't heard the gospel. Many people will, I think, because at the end of the day, they live according to their own agendas. But for the person who is genuinely seeking God, I believe they will genuinely find. Jesus said, seek and you will find. You know that 40%, they reckon 40% of Muslims that are becoming Christians today, they have prior encounters before they hear the gospel. God has broken into their lives with dreams with visions, with miraculous healings. And so, and, and they seek out the gospel. Or when the guys get there bringing the gospel, the Christians come, these guys, they're, they're surprised at the receptiveness and the openness of these people because God has been there before. God is for people. God loves people. False religion, incomplete revelation. These things in and of themselves are not barriers to God breaking into a person's life. 
It's always what takes place here. It's what we do with the revelation. Just hearing the gospel isn't a guarantee of salvation. It's how we respond. And so whether we have a massive revelation, you and I are the most privileged of all people and therefore the most accountable of all people living in this day and generation because we have the Bible so readily available. And in fact, this question, like I said, it's often a smokescreen because there aren't too many people in the world today who actually haven't heard the gospel at some level. You know, there are awesome people out there that have got radio stations and the gospel is going out via the internet. You know, you have to be pretty isolated to have never heard the gospel these days. So it's a bit of a smokescreen, this question. But I want us to keep in mind those things. There's no person who's truly ignorant. There's no person who is truly innocent. And there is no person that is independent of accountability towards God, but also who is too far removed from God's influence. People will be judged and saved or saved, not by what they don't know, but how they respond to what they do. Rahab, in the New Testament, Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. An angel comes and says, send for Peter. God wants to break in to people's lives. And so we can be encouraged that God is not unfair. God is not disinterested. God is not rubbing his hands together gleefully because I don't like that people group and I can't. It's just so good that they haven't had the gospel yet. No, God is breaking in. God is wanting all people to be saved. And he's doing amazing things in this day and generation. You might even be living proof of this tonight. Just because you live in Australia, maybe, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, it would be impossible not to have heard the gospel, but many people today come through those doors and they've never heard the gospel before. It's their first time in church. You actually could be living proof of what I'm saying tonight. That God somehow has broken into your world. He's interrupted the course of your life in order that he may demonstrate his love to you, reveal truth to you that you might respond well and be saved through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the only way there's salvation. There's no other way to God but through Jesus. But like I said, the, the level of revelation people have in Jesus, depending on whether it's New Testament, Old Testament, as long as we are looking at Jesus and living faithfully according to the revelation they have, I'm confident that God in his wisdom, God in his love, God in his foreknowledge, etc., etc., is going to do right. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.